Okay. Welcome everybody um, to Behind the Frontline. My name's Dave Clements. I'm chair of the Social Policy Forum for the Academy of Ideas. This is our first online social policy forum. Um, I've been asked to let you know that um, while this is free to attend virtually, um, it'd be appreciated if possible, if you can afford it, if you're able to donate to the Academy of Ideas at academyofideas.org.uk. Um, okay, so the title, as I said, is Behind the Front Line. While well, the nation has been getting behind the NHS and care workers, onto doorsteps, the clap for carers, battling with COVID-19, the growing sentiments that we don't appreciate enough, the vital and sometimes dangerous work they do. There's also been a new appreciation, not traditionally thought of as, as essential. Bus drivers, shower snackers, bar workers, bin men, and then the others doing what is perhaps only belatedly being recognised as essential work. Is the wartime rhetoric and applauding of heroes overdone and the list of key workers overlong? Will everything return to normal after the crisis is over? Or will public support and gratitude lead to better pay and services, a post-COVID Green New Deal, or a Build Back Better um, Britain, as the, uh, the, the Northern Mayors have been calling it? Will there be a new appreciation of public service? So, so hopefully, if not answer the questions, at least helped us prompt a discussion about, the, about this topic. We've got two excellent speakers to start the discussion. First, we have Dr. Frank Anderson, who is currently a psychiatry trainee in London. Prior to this, she was a neuro-rehabilitation medicine trainee in Oxford. She was a co-founder of Sheffield Salon and has chaired and spoken on multiple debates, both at the Sheffield Salon and the Battle of Ideas, uh, the Battle of Ideas, which is the Academy of Ideas annual festival of debate. John Bryan will be speaking after Frankie. He's the treasurer of the Great Debate, a full-time trade union official, and has been involved in trade unions all of his working life. His background is in sociology and social research, working in further education colleges in the northeast of England. He's written about post-16 education in the Railage Farmer Guide to Key Debates in Education and the Lecturer's Guide to Further Education. So I'll ask Frankie um, and John to speak in that order for 10 minutes each or thereabouts. Um, after that, we'll go out to the discussion. I'll take a few points and we'll go backwards and forwards between the two um, introductory speakers um, and go back out for questions again. They'll then sum up at the end for approximately two minutes each. Um, my co-chair is, is uh, Mo Lovett. She'll be um, intervening if my connection goes down, which has happened in the past. Um, and she'll also be keeping an eye on the chat facility. So some of you may want to use the chat facility uh, uh, alongside taking part in the uh, online discussion. If you'd like to ask a question or make a point, please use the raise hand function. Um, and I'm actually recording this session as well, so you should know that. That is about it, really. I think I'll hand over to Frankie, if that's okay, if you wouldn't mind. Yes, sure. 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, and thank you for putting on such a timely debate. Um, so as a bit of context for me as well, I am currently a psychiatrist working in South East London, um, but I'm also dual qualified in general medicine, having worked as a medical registrar in hospital for several years. And so as a result of the last five months, I have worked on and off with COVID positive patients directly, um, so really behind the front line. So for the next 10 minutes, I'd like to discuss three main themes that kind of emerged for me over the last the last kind of half a year so my first is how perceptions towards key workers by the public and by key workers themselves has changed over the course of the pandemic the implications of the phrase gamification and particularly on the nhs and care workers in particular and then finally i'd like to talk about the care home scandal and how this links into previous perceptions of essential workers and their renewed employment, and most importantly, perhaps, where we go next in the post-pandemic period. So to my first point, how perceptions have changed towards key workers. So the NHS has obviously undergone a huge transformation in the last six months. Prior to about January, very few of us saw ourselves as key workers, except those lucky enough to be negotiating the right to buy ski or trying to find key worker accommodation on a budget. You may see yourself as a teacher, a doctor, a postal worker, but very few of us would have considered themselves under labelling key worker. From about March onwards, when the lockdown happened, obviously being a key worker took on, a more, took on more significance. It granted you greater freedom to go back and forth to work, access food shopping at appropriate hours, um, but also at the cost of having to turn up to work, and as the government kept telling us, to save lives. Since the conception of this term in 2001, there's been a widening definition of key worker to the point that about 30% of the working population fall into it. And if you think about it, it's unsurprising. Food processors, bin men, fruit pickers, all are required. But what did strike me at the beginning of the pandemic was how on social media, certain groups of people outed themselves as disconnected from the real world. So fights raged on Twitter against who they saw as an essential worker and the risk of people going back and forth to work on public transport. And I caveat with the fact that this, with the fact that Twitter is not real life. What it tends to do is push people into extreme positions and then um, fossilize those positions. However, with people being viewed as selfish to go to work, this was often carried over onto, um, onto uh, real life, onto television, and often you switch on the news to find people crowding onto buses, the majority of which were key workers. And this is perhaps unsurprising if you think that how much of public transport is used, um, not just in London, but particularly if you are on a low income and you travel long distances because of elevated housing costs. But there seemed to be a significant surprise that those working behind the scene could be seen as essential workers. And some people struggle to understand that certain jobs simply cannot be done for home. And as this played out on social media, it got me thinking. Um, and I found this interesting and I found myself wondering why there was such anger amongst certain groups about who was seen to be going to work, who was seen to be an essential worker, who was seen to fall under the key worker status. 
And I think undoubtedly some of this was driven by fear and the messaging from the government very early on that people must stay at home in order to save lives. But I also think there is a hierarchy in how people perceive key workers and who they perceive as key workers. And I think this particularly played out in COVID because the idea was that if you took a bus to work, you were invariably spreading COVID and not following the government line and therefore were prolonging the pandemic. And I think it reflects really an underlying tendency that has occurred in the past and is and manifested at the beginning that certain essential workers were seen as more essential than others essential enough to risk spreading COVID so for example nurses teachers postmen and those who weren't really seen as essential enough builders road workers cleaners and these are typically jobs that um, the American sociologist Mary Collins replied as described as low prestige jobs often those who took um, very high risk for their health, for example, bin workers without PPE, but for less immediate public respect and less pay. And I do think one of the things that has come out of COVID is that has forced us into having a discussion about what worker is essential in a pandemic. And it perhaps has also highlighted how essential certain jobs are and how badly that they are being currently being paid. There's nothing like a catastrophe to make, think, make people think about why and what sort of society you want to live in. And I'll come back to this point at the end. My second point that I wanted to talk about briefly was this idea Dave raised in his introduction about hereification, and particularly in relation to healthcare workers. So hereification is traditionally defined as the removal of certain details both trivial and important to fit a narrative um, that is the archetypal, flawless, inhuman hero. And this very evidently manifests in the Bansky mural. I don't know if any of you saw it of the kid playing with the nurse doll instead of with Spider-Man and often was used in language and TV reports. I don't think at one time there was a large central teaching hospital in London that didn't have an ITV Channel 4 BBC crew in its ITU department. And I think the interesting thing about hereification is that I'm not a hero, I just go to job like everyone else goes and works. And this hereification really came from the outside onto hero, um, to health professionals. And it's something I thought a lot about because as discussed in previous debates, the clap for carers often get quite a lot of, can often polarise people in their perspective. And I think, I think it reflects something about COVID actually, is that through this kind of narrative of hereification of war, it's a way of trying to regain control and a sense of solidarity against a major pandemic. And I think it reflects something specific about COVID is that our major coping mechanisms, such as spending time with family, friends, going to the pub, have been turned against us and we're not allowed to do that anymore. And as a result, we feel more atomized because we are physically separated by this disease. And so you see solidarity emerging in other ways. And this idea of getting behind the NHS and thanking key workers, acting as something tangible to get behind. And the kindness and the generosity shown to healthcare professionals during this time has been humbling. 
and particularly more from grassroots um, organisations. So I cannot underestimate the significant proportion of PPE that was actually made on a 3D printer. Scrubs were sewn in um, in like home home agreed like networks of scrub making machines. Goggles were bought for us, which really did stem the gap when we needed to. And I think if you stop clapping, I wouldn't stop suddenly going to work. And I think it, it became a very external manifestation as a way of trying to exert control in what was a very uncontrolled world. And I think particularly, although there was a grassroots structure to this, there was also a government-led element to it as well. But the messaging behind it being save the NHS, save the NHS, defend the NHS, put a circle around the NHS. And it was this sense that if we all got behind this kind of monolithic structure of the NHS, we can somehow defeat this. The problem with herification is that it doesn't work in real life. And that at some point you're going to fall from grace because hospitals, health workers, the NHS is a messy business with finite resources which has been quickly and rapidly reconfigured in order to do the right thing at the right time. And I think this fall from grace came in the form of the care home scandal, um, which is still ongoing. Um, and looking at the early discharges of residents back into care homes from the, in order to protect the NHS. Um, and I think, moving on to my final point which is about where we go next but also where key workers go next is covid has given a narrative in order to discuss the underlying structural inequalities that were always there so the ideas around class and poverty and actually indeed race which was lying under the surface have been starkly brought into the forefront people have been forced to confront them both in who covered effects and in who we value with people in society when the virus hit it was very obvious from the beginning that it was unjustly and disproportionately affecting certain communities. These were typically poorer communities, those were pre-existing healthcare systems and those who struggled to access healthcare. And the most obvious example is this has been magnified in the US where 70% of Detroit's victims of COVID were black Afro-Americans and where the healthcare system is linked to stable employment and, in, and insurance that is dependent on employment that you put at risk of poor outcomes in COVID. So diabetes, hypertension, obesity, these were conditions that make you more at risk of getting COVID and doing worse from COVID. Um, and they could be improved by preventive medicine, but because the healthcare system isn't there, this doesn't happen. And moving back to the UK, we've also had to have a discussion about essential workers in lower incomes such as bin men who were disproportionately affected by covid and also those who lie between the nhs and the social care structures so for example um, the outsourcing of hospital cleaners to private companies um, left people working on zero hours contracts without always the right access to PPE and they weren't under the framework of the NHS. And so 
moving on to my point, which is that COVID has shone a light under on these problems that were already under the surface. And this is particularly what you see in the care home sector. And so the elephant in the room for the last God knows how long has been social care and how we support the aging population. And our response to this has been to consistently underpay key carers in homes, reduce the time carers can spend attending older people and reducing funding in the care sector. And through COVID, what we saw was a preferential favouring over the NHS, over the care system, in terms of access to testing, access to PPE, to support and respect for carers initially in the initial phases and what they do in care homes. And I think this really reflects what was an already established trend of how we view care home professionals and how we view people within care homes. And so my real kind of discussion that I have is that, and a discussion that's going on throughout the NHS at the moment, and I'm sure in other elements of the key worker population, is where we go next. These problems that COVID magnified are problems that have been long-standing. We've now brought to the forefront the kind of the disproportionate pay scales within certain components of key workers. And I suppose my big question is where do we go next with this? Um, because it has to be beyond a care badge. It has to be beyond an NHS medal. That is not concrete change, which is what needs to come out of this pandemic. That's me done. Sorry, I've muted myself. Thank you, Frankie. That was excellent. Um, John, would you like to follow your introduction? Okay. Um, thanks very much, Dave, and uh, uh, thanks, Frankie, for um, um, for that that introduction. Uh, I have to say, my uh, my experience on the front line has been sitting in my lounge, um, you know, speaking on the phone or, or speaking through you know virtual means rather than being on on the front line. Um, but when I was looking at this session and thinking of preparing for it, one of the things I wanted to do was try and give a bit of context to it. Um, just not just over the last few months, but over the last few years as well, you know, and I think we need that context before we start looking forward about what next, which is some of the things that Frankie said at the end. I mean, I look back at a few photos um, about the first time that we all stood outside our homes and clapped our hands together at eight o'clock at night, you know, that first Thursday on the 26th of March. And one of the things about those photos, it, it was absolutely pitch black. And it just reminded me that we've come quite a long way in the last three months through this crisis. And it prompted me to think about the first conversations that I became aware of and became involved in about what constitutes a key worker. It certainly wasn't clear from the start about who would fall into that category. My partner who teaches students aged 17 and over in a college, she was told that she was a key worker and that she needed to be in work as usual on Monday the 23rd of March, the day that Boris Johnson announced the shutdown. That message from her employer soon changed when the penny finally dropped in the three days prior to the full lockdown. So whose roles do we deem essential to society? so essential that those roles have to carry on and be performed throughout this pandemic. Now, I know it's a, a simple point to make, but I think what we view as being essential is a debatable point. 
Two thirds of the workforce are currently employed in sectors that the government has decided are superfluous to our basic lives. Pubs, restaurants, casinos, theatres, churches, gyms, and many more establishments that provide entertainment and leisure. As we know, they've all been closed for the last three months. Now I could live without some of those facilities that the government view as non-essential for a little while longer, but not all of them. They exist because they fulfill a function, a human need, albeit arguably not an essential one. So we probably have an idea about what we see as being essential, but what the government view as being essential really does depend on the situation. And I want to give a bit of context to this over the last few years. So if you look back to five years ago, the Queen's speech in May 2015, we were told that the government was going to introduce legislation which was going to reform trade unions and to protect essential public services against strikes. The following year, the Trade Union Act of 2016 became law. Not only did it make strike action more difficult to organise for all sectors of the workforce, it added additional legal hurdles for those trade unions who employed members who were in essential public services. In those areas, strike action was more difficult to take, and that was the impact of the 2016 Trade Union Act. And I just want to look at what those areas are, because I think it gives a bit of context to where this phrase essential worker or essential public service comes from. So in the regulations, it talks about health services, it talks about education to those aged under 17, it talks about the fire service, transport services, decommissioning of nuclear installations and border security. Now, for the most part, those categories were chosen by the government as a direct attack on the ability of workers in those areas to organise effective and legal industrial action. It was quite clear that the Conservative Party at the time were trying to make it more difficult for teachers, doctors, nurses, firefighters and train drivers in particular to take effective strike action one of the things that the Conservative Party had been concerned about for some time. Now, when we look at this year and when we look at what the government in the guidance talked about key workers at the end of March, it's far broader than the list that I've just read. So I just want to think, you know, why did the government come up with that list? And just to kind of refresh our memories about that. So they created this list so that schools could determine which children they still had to cater for over the last few months. As I said earlier, and as Frankie said, it's about a third of the workforce and about 20% of school children have at least one parent who will be defined as a key worker. Or to give it its full title, a worker who's critical to the COVID-19 government response. So as well as all the areas that I've already mentioned in the Trade Union Act of 2016, a large number of other sectors, and Frankie mentioned some of these, a large number of other sectors of the economy have been brought into the area of providing an essential public service. So that includes food and everything associated with how it gets on our tables, banking, communications, gas, water, electricity, some local and national government functions, communications, service, social services, and much more. So it's a huge list, but most of them we probably didn't immediately think of when we got together once a week to clap for the key workers. 
and a large number of them as well also worked from home, like many of the rest of us. Which really meant that it's a handful that continue to leave their homes and physically go into work, which were the more obvious focus for our weekly applause. Postal workers, shop workers, delivery drivers, carers, or those who work in the health service, they're the people who you would most associate as being the key workers that we're, we're clapping for every week. So just think back in again, why is it for a period of our lives it had that effect of building a community spirit in our streets? And I'm aware that it wasn't a community spirit all across the country, but it certainly was in the areas that, that I'm aware of. So we were told to stay in our homes, we were told to all stay safe, and at a time when the virus was keeping us all apart, the clap for key workers was a way for us all to come back together. And that spirit of being together is important. And where I live, it's one of the things that we're trying to keep going. The last Thursday, in spite of it pouring down in rain where I live, we all met in our street undercover for a drink outside at eight o'clock. We didn't clap for key workers, but we just banded together as a community as we have done for the last few weeks. I'm aware that others too have tried to do something to keep going. And I did notice a number of posts on social media at the time. People said, well, I'm going to carry on clapping for key workers because I think it's important to do. I have to say that I don't think that's a vehicle that you need to be on anymore. If you want to try and keep a community spirit or try and fight for things for the future, you have to try and find alternative ways of doing that. And that's something that I think we need to talk about in the discussion. So as we look to the future and think about what faces us in the coming weeks and months, I guess that some of us will have been watching the news over the last few days and wondering what the hell's going on. Maybe what we're seeing in our streets now is replacing the focus that we all had every week when we would clap for key workers. But I guess that's a matter for another discussion. So irrespective of what we think about that, I think that in the workplace, there are some things that we can do which we can take advantage of in the climate that we find ourselves. There are a lot of things that are up for grabs as no one seems to be in control of, of anything. And doing so requires some organisations. Now, it could be through the organisation of a trade union, but it doesn't have to be. It can be any way of actually collectivising and trying to do something together. The key thing I think is to try and get the right questions and get the right demands that we're making. Because if we don't, I think there's a real strong possibility that things will just return back to normal if we don't do that. I'm sure that people are aware that in some areas, people were able to get additional payments for key workers if they continue to work for these crises and if they left the home in order to go for work. Arguing for a payment for being on the front line and being critical to the government's COVID-19 response is one thing. But it's arguable that's a temporary thing. And in lots of, lots of places, either those payments have been removed or they are in the process of being removed. I think it's another thing altogether to totally overhaul the way in which we employ certain groups of people and put them on decent terms and conditions. That takes organisation and effort. I haven't seen any analysis but I do suspect that in many cases where additional payments were given to key workers through this crisis, this wasn't a result of some genuine pressure and organisation by trade unions or by other groups. It was through the employer making the decision to make that additional payment.
not in all cases, but I suspect in many cases. So how do we ensure that society continues to value key workers? Well, we could do it by pressurising political parties. That's certainly one way. We could do it to organise to spend our money in ways that promote good employment practices. I think these are all questions for us to think about. But I think one of the things that we have to continue to do is continue to do work things in our communities and in our workplaces, even if we have to do that online. And as well as that, I think we do need to learn some lessons from the last few months. And I do think it's legitimate for us to ask people, what exactly do you do and why is your job important? You know, I work for the University and College Union and come across people who work in in management in colleges and universities all the time. Some of those job titles are strategic or um, direction or whatever. And it's quite clear that they provided no leadership, no strategic direction at all. So I think we really do need to be asking, are these the sort of people that we want to be continuing to do a job? Or might they be better off being redeployed into other areas? Do we need managers, for example, in public services who have shown themselves up as being unable to be operationally useful? Think back to the start of all this and when the Nightingale Hospital started to be put back together, when getting the job done and getting things created so that we could protect people if they became ill, that became the important thing to do. If you think about in schools how testing of 11 year olds was just pretty quickly dropped, school attendance no longer became a criterion for judging a school. The research excellence framework in university was just pushed back. Ofsted inspections became irrelevant. A lot of these things which people say are very important in our public services have just been pushed away. So I think we're living in a really different world today. Everything is up for grabs. How we treat all workers, whether essential or otherwise, is one of my concerns in the coming months ahead. And I think Frankie said, you know, there are some divisions in the workforce and we do need to make sure that we overcome those divisions. We need to make sure that those divisions are not exacerbated, whether that's amongst key workers themselves or whether it's between key workers and other workers or indeed workers who have been furloughed and workers who have continued to work throughout this crisis. As I say, I think everything's up for grabs. Thanks. Thank you, John. Uh, again, uh, an excellent introduction. Two really useful introductions, actually. Um, I'm going to go straight out and to, to uh, ask people if they'd like to make points or ask questions. As I say, please use the raise your hand facility. I'll take a few questions at a time and then go back to the go back to uh, John and Frankie, um, and uh, we'll see how long this takes us. Like the, the, usually, the, these meetings take about an hour and a half. But it could be it could be shorter than that. Uh, we'll see. Um, it, it could be longer. Um, so, who have we got next? Are there any hands up? Let's see. We have Jane. I'll just unmute you. Um, two quick thanks, Frankie and John. That was really useful. Um, two questions. I mean, we've got loads, but I'm just going to do two. Um, one is. Do you see there will be any change as we come out of lockdown between frontline and 
I would say maybe invisible workers. Do we see that there's a potential of tension there? I mean, you just think today BP announced 10,000 job losses, which didn't even make headline news. It's, it's like here is a bunch of workers who now can be written off and no one even mentions them in the press briefing. Um, it, as if they don't even count um, and you know the only thing is oh lives versus economy as if their lives have become nothing and we applaud the, the you know we applaud the key workers is, is that potentially problematic for the future in the solidarity you wish for John and I have been working with unions in my work at the moment and I have to say the, the emphasis is on safety of staff which actually doesn't again seem as um, positive as the way you're trying to say perhaps John the workplace may change with unions or workers and so very much increasing fear and atomization in the workplace through that um, way of looking at things rather than solidarity and challenge. Thank you Jane. Uh, Simon. Uh, yeah great introductions. Uh, Frankie to uh, to pick up on this NHS thing, so everyone going out clapping for NHS workers and putting them on a pedestal, there does seem to be a situation where, uh, and this might sound very harsh, so it's, uh, it's kind of a question to come back on, but the video uh, of that woman outside the supermarket in tears and not being able to get access to the food that she wanted seemed to be the main story of um, how NHS staff were kind of responding to us. Whereas for me, something like uh, the discussion about uh, face masks and how useful they are uh, could be something that um, the kind of medical skills uh, and expertise of NHS staff could be brought to bear on the uh, wider public conversation about whether we should wear them or not out in public. But that doesn't seem to have happened. So whilst on the one hand, there is that kind of public elevation of uh, NHS staff to be doing a fabulous job for us, but the contribution back in terms of uh, informing the public debate um, on face masks, for example, doesn't seem to have been there. Am I wanting too much uh, from uh, my NHS people? Thank you, Simon. Uh, Jenny. Hey Jenny. Um, I haven't got my video on because is that you can hear me right? Yeah, that's fine. Um, really, really great introductions and thank you very much. I, I, there's loads of kind of uh, thoughts in all of this. I suppose just to have to one specific one. Um, a friend of mine who's uh, whose partner had I think about ten days. Um, was talking about how she rang 111 after seven days as she was told to and um, was basically said well you know is he is he struggling to breathe well no I will just carry on drinking the water and taking the paracetamol and stuff 
And she said, oh, yeah, at that point, I felt really abandoned by the NHS. And I, I kind of, what this whole thing is kind of brought home to me, I mean, partly it's because I teach, but in a broader perspective, is that, that sense of um, the welfare state more broadly, what, what are the implications for all of this? Because I think um, the experience, people's experience of the NHS in this has been quite uh, <laughs> varied. Um, and, um, you know, you have the kind of, oh, you clap for us now thing, but also people feeling quite left alone to deal with um, health issues, um, COVID-19, but then all the other ramifications, dentistry, whatever. I think the, the retreat of schools has been hugely significant. And I, I suppose one of the things that I, um, it's really made me think about is how much that sense of the kind of, public service ethos and the welfare state and that kind of national collectivism seems to have um, dwindled really in this crisis. So I'd like to hope there's something more positive to come out of it, but I also think there's a lot of quite kind of troubling things that it's revealed. Thanks. Thanks, Jenny. Um, I'll take a couple more. Para. Tara, are you there? Um, yes, there you are. Yes, okay. Go ahead. I realised I was muted. <laughs> um, I think the question about how can we ensure that society values uh, key workers after all this is over is quite an important one. And obviously it's a big challenge because uh, as Jane started the contribution by saying, you know, people are being made redundant. So on the one hand, you've got all the essential workers, which you recognize are needed to keep the economy or keep society moving. And then on the other hand, at the same time, you've got lots of people who are being made redundant, probably more so after furlough ends. So it is a challenge. And one way of perhaps um, looking at all this rather than uh, precisely talking about essential workers with the NHS or the care system, is um, perhaps more use the word, you know, uh, how can we improve uh, pay and working conditions for the low paid? Um, and I just wanted to throw that in because uh, that kind of brings everybody who has got issues with pay and not good working conditions under that remit to be looking at that in that way if you like the resolution foundation report which was for reading but they actually brought something out uh, early this week i.e on monday and i thought some of the things that they were arguing there are quite useful things for us to pick up and push uh, for instance, uh, making sure that um, uh, low-paid workers get uh, statutory sick pay, um, making sure that they are not paid monthly, but perhaps weekly. So fairly simple things which will help um, uh, give low-paid workers a lot more um, stability, if you like. Uh, um, and, you know, perhaps that's one way of taking it forward so that people are not forgotten. Okay, thanks, Para. I'll just take one more for the moment. Uh, Noah. Hello. Um, 
You're muted now. Am I am muted? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Frankie and John. Really a great points. Just a few questions from me. I'll try and be quick. Um, I wondered how you thought we could best sort of distinguish between um, criticising institutions like the NHS and the education system, um, while also recognising the individuals that are working within them and ensuring that we value those that are working there. Um, also, I wonder what you thought um, the threats were when you were talking about the fact lots of low-income workers use uh, public transport, what the threats are as we see a drive, um, if you pardon the pun, towards using more sort of private um, transport ownership like driving, walking and cycling, both because of um, the capacity and people being paranoid about using things like coaches and trains. Um, furthermore, I wonder when you were talking about heroes, I thought that was a really interesting point, whether we should see heroes as key workers. Um, if all key workers as heroes and whether we view them that way not because of what they do specifically within their job but the aspiration for actually going into the profession in the first place and because they're sort of such an explicit um, sign of altruism and a desire to help others whether it's sort of teaching the next generation or saving lives that isn't so explicit in other professions. Um, and finally, I wonder what you thought about our sort of understanding of the good life as humans, because at the moment we've all had to sort of live these frugal survivalist lifestyles since lockdown, where we only sort of focus on the essential um, lifestyles. And I wonder what, whether you thought it was sort of part of the human condition that we have an aspiration to, you know, go to these perhaps non-essential places like some shops that have obviously had to shut, um, and how we sort of will understand that compared to the role of key workers um, as lockdown is further eased. Thank you very much. Okay, some great points and questions made there. Um, I'll go back to Frankie uh, first and then John. Uh, Frankie, do you want to come back on any of those points? Yeah, I'm going to um, briefly come back on several of them. Um, Jane, I'm going to put yours last because I just want to talk about safety in the workplace. Um, so I think probably how this is kind of summed up is the general perspective is the NHS is this um, kind of sacred cow come monolith. And I think if you actually work within the NHS or you have interactions with the NHS, actually what you see is that there's a series of in-silo hospitals that are all under the framework of the NHS. And I think um, the problem with the hereification and the kind of putting a, a fence around the NHS is the point Ellie, Jenny made, sorry, about... Um, um when the nhs doesn't meet your expectations and i think i think one of the big things that's going to have to come out in the wash about this is the fact that at certain levels the nhs has failed so i think over an emphasis on perhaps covid over the this kind of repeated messaging that you must stay at home to protect the nhs stuff about ppe and how protocols worked and also the stuff about care homes is all going to have to be discussed and dissected at some point. And the problem is when you put something like the NHS on a platform or you hear a fire or whatever you do to it, you then always end up in a situation where it never quite meets its needs. Um, and I agree. I think 111 didn't do very well. Um, my mum had COVID-like symptoms. She was 75. They rang her back in two hours like there's a lot of stuff that needs to be thought about and discussed and looking at how we prepare for future pandemics and other kind of black swan events um my second point was about um yeah i do agree that um 
I'm hoping that the, you know, essential, it was weird because when the word key worker or essential worker came to me, it just delineated the fact that I could get on a tube without anyone asking where I was going. I didn't really feel like it gave me some sort of heightened sense of purpose. Um, probably being called an essential worker does imply that. But I think as we move into post-pandemic uh, recession, we're going to have to think about everyone and all workers in solidarity. And I agree, Alka, I think there is definitely something about putting together um, appropriate um, kind of minimal requirements for all workers. And I think that particularly played out to me at least in the kind of private companies and cleaners who are not part of the NHS so there was an assumption that they were part of the NHS they're not they're on zero hour contracts they actually did quite badly out of COVID and then uh, my third point yes I do think it's part of the human condition to want non-essential things I think there is more to life than just being alive um, if I have to spend the next 10 years in lockdown, I'm going to shoot myself, um, and I'm sure everyone else will join me. Oh, am I? No, I'm not. Um, uh, Simon, the point about clapping and the woman outside of Tesco's and masks, I think it's very interesting because there is a degree of politicisation to NHS workers. Um, so I think the, this was most came out in a kind of um, per, um, panorama documentary where they all turned out to be labour activists or whatever it was. I think there is different elements of people, NHS workers are humans as well, when they go onto social media they're often plugging their own line. Um, so the, the kind of classic one was when the NHS workers went to parliament, took a knee and brought wreaths in in order to talk about the PPE crisis and it's like, guys read the room. Um, but um, and I think the woman who was crying in ITU outside of Sainsbury's, wherever it was, I think, you know, she she was saying that this is we don't have any food. Fair enough, really. Um, face masks. Um, there is there is stuff out there. I mean, evidence of face masks is not clear. Wear face masks. Don't wear face masks obviously you have to wear a face mask now um i'm not sure it would necessarily help to have thousands of doctors like when boris johnson got ill every single f1 or various other doctors seemed to end up on sky news giving their opinion about boris johnson's prognosis how would you know i think the same thing is with with face masks i think there are official sources which will show you the evidence. I'm not sure I'd want everyone on the Twitter account to just tweet about health promotion. And then my final point about Jane and safety of staff at work um, and fear anatomization. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the plan appears to be that we all go, well, everyone goes back to work. And, but stays away from each other. I just don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if anyone's been on a tube recently, um, but you cannot socially distance on a tube. I don't think there are several jobs you can't socially distance in. Um, I slightly wonder if setting up this aspiration of safety of staff um, in relation to, you know, we haven't been able to socially distance on a lot of the wards that I've been on and we're in a healthcare setting. So I don't, I slightly worry about the aspiration of setting up this idea that 
a two meter arbitrary, an arbitrary two meter rule and then implanting it into um, the kind of private sector. I just don't know how that's going to work. And I wonder if it's, there's more to be said about having an argument about relative risks and relative, um, relative impact of various, you know, of your relative risk of actually getting ill if you have to sit less than two meters from your colleague. Um, it's not black and white. Right. Thank you, Frankie. Um, okay, I'll, I'll come to John now. The Enfield need to answer everything, but certainly there were some specific points made. I think the one from Jane was probably directed at you, John, around uh, a union's a bit um, health and safety obsessed, um, and Para's point about low pay. Um, and then the one thing which, which struck me in relation to Jenny's point about um, the loss of collectivism and the public ethos and this old this old kind of welfare culture was that when we came out clapping for care of the workers i was very struck by how we're kind of it's almost a lonely experience but it's kind of the first time some some of us have seen our neighbors you can sort of stood on your doorstep just looking at each other so i just wonder whether there's something about that as well because i know you, you were kind of keen to suggest that you know it has built communities to some extent in this crisis uh, john uh yeah I guess it depends what you've done in terms of, you know, Thursday nights and what you've tried to do in the street where you live. I mean, you know, where I live, we have tried to create a real community spirit here. I'm aware that my street is not identical to everyone else's. I mean, everyone's in the house here. There's no high rise flats or anything, but we have tried to kind of create a bit of a community spirit. So we set up a WhatsApp group, you know, immediately when this all started so we can be in touch with each other. Uh, and I've tried to kind of spread that message around with friends and family to do something similar. So that's what we've tried to do. Um, but I'm aware it's not easy for everyone, everyone to do that. I think part of a lot of the questions, I think, kind of um, relate to the fact that what this has really shown up is that there is a real problem with the government or with the state and with state institutions. And people have talked about the way in which various kind of uh, parts of the state have been contracted out to private providers and everything else. But, you know, the, the state really is fractured in terms of the way in which it, it deals with things. And I think that in itself is problematic and it's not the only reason, but that is one of the reasons I think that the public service ethos has, has dwindled to, to one extent or, or another. Um, in terms of the stuff about jobs and um, so Jane talked about jobs and um, para talked about uh, low pay i think there is a there is a real problem going forward i mean I, so i work for the university and college union so you know i'm dealing with colleges and universities all the time at the moment and as you might expect you know the things that they're talking about is they're talking about a decline in student numbers they're talking about declining finances and what that means for the workforce and largely what it's going to mean is is it's going to mean either a smaller workforce or uh, a less well-paid workforce and what is it that people want going forward people want jobs rather than pay that's the overwhelming message that we've got it might not be the case everywhere but overwhelmingly people will want jobs rather than pay and that makes it very difficult actually to um to have a concerted effort to fight low pay because if what you're doing is you're seeking to protect jobs arguing for a pay rise at, at the time when people are losing their jobs doesn't really make much sense so i do think there is a real problem going forward with that you know with, with what we expect there, there to be a real decline in jobs and a rise in unemployment and everything else 
you know, and trying to tackle low pay at the same time, I think is going to be, is going to be very, very difficult. Um, I'm just looking at a couple of other things. Um, oh, oh, the thing about safety and about trade unions, I think, I have to say one of the things that, that as a trade union official that we always have a problem with is getting people to be health and safety reps. It's one of the kind of uh, con consistent problems that, that we have, getting people to sign up and do that. You might not think that given the kind of, you know, prominence of them over, you know, the last uh, last month or two. But again, you know, so, you know, if you think about the schools, so the National Education Union has done, you know, a massive thing about we want to make sure that our schools are safe before you go back. Um, and you can have a discussion about whether or not that's the right kind of focus, whether or not people should be talking about let's let's get back as quickly as we can to continue the education, or do we want to make sure that the um, those schools are safe and that you know the staff are safe? I have to say I wouldn't blame anyone for trying to kind of get leverage in this at a time when everyone else is providing very little direction. You know the government announced that what's going to happen is that schools are going to start back from the first of June but didn't give any real kind of um, direction, you know, the guidance, there was still guidance coming out at the end of May, you know, um, when schools were starting to come back in the 1st of June. So I don't really blame, you know, uh, trade unions for thinking, well, actually, let's try and get a handle of this and let's try and steer this in our, in our uh, particular way. There might be different ways of doing it and possibly better ways of doing it. But I wouldn't blame anyone at all for trying to get a handle on it because I think that's what trade unions try and, try and do and trade unions don't always get leverage you know i mean we can see you know i mean one of the things that's um you know obviously some of the key workers are people that work for amazon and loads of other delivery you know companies and delivery drivers and what have you i mean they're not highly unionized at all and they're not particularly well paid um so you know what we do with groups of workers like that um you know will be an issue issue for the future but I think at a time when there's a real lack of control, I kind of don't blame any, anyone for trying to get a handle on it and steer it in a particular way. We could have a discussion about which way to steer it, but um, but you know that's a that's a separate discussion. I think I'll leave it there. Thanks. Sorry, I was muted. Um, thank you, John. Um, I will now try and get as many in as possible. There are quite a few people waiting to to uh, make a comment. Bear with me a second and I'll just find them. Okay, Kerry, I'll unmute you. Can you hear me? There you go. Okay, Kerry. I'm audible. Yes, you are. Yes. Okay. Uh, thank you very much to uh, John and Frankie. Um, firstly, on Frankie and Jenny's point, I do agree. I'd go further that the sacralization of the NHS um, has not only been based on a lie that not meeting a lot of people's experience um, but has also as I think Frankie you've mentioned been responsible for so many COVID deaths in care homes and it's my understanding that is where the main um, COVID deaths are actually now happening is within care homes and we shouldn't forget obviously um, the extent to which lockdown in this regard has killed people. The number of um, paramedics and ambulance drivers reporting over a 50% increase in those who have died um, uh, prior to them um, getting to hospital. 
um, precisely because people wouldn't even call the NHS. So I, I do think the sacralization of the NHS has been um, not just a lie, but a disaster. And I think, you know, if you push people and they're honest about it, their general experience of the NHS isn't that it's all fabulous and everyone who works there is an angel or a god. Um, I think it, you know, quite the opposite in many cases, although the level of mass virtue signaling means that you're not allowed necessarily to say that. I do think that the whole designation of people as essential, um, while it, there's a real truth in that, that or invisible as, as uh, other people have mentioned, is uh, quite reactionary and negative in that it's the negation of solidarity and very divisive. Certainly not all those people are low paid, you know, NHS managers, police chiefs, you know, there's all sorts of people within Essential who certainly don't um, get much sympathy um, from me. So I think it's a very problematic designation. And I think John has mentioned this, but I don't think there has been in that designation of essential and appreciation and broader clapping of key workers, any demand for more pay. That's never, from what I've seen, that's never been part of it. People haven't said, you know, anything more than they need to be valued, but valued has never meant pay them a decent wage. It might mean that they can, you know, get a free meal or get on a tube without getting any shit off the police. But other than that, it's been minimal. My main concern now is the, that I do think the trade unions have played. I understand, John, your point that about use whatever hand or you can to get whatever you can. But I think the trade unions have played a wholly reactionary role in their use of safety as a, you know, trying to use that to get more uh, of a role or influence or more for people, because it certainly hasn't meant more for people. It's meant opposing the right to work. And I'm wondering where that's now going to leave us and that surely we, we might have to resurrect an idea of our right to work not least given the massive unemployment that's going to follow this and the redundancies, as I think Jane has mentioned, that haven't even been uh, recognised. And um, I, I just don't think that the trade unions as a vehicle necessarily are going to be able to be. I don't know that you can resurrect them, maybe in pocket, resurrect them as a means by which we fight for a better deal for people. Okay, thank you, Gary. Um, can I ask people to keep their um, comments as brief as possible now, please? We've got quite a few people who want to speak. Okay, uh, Martin. Okay, yes, so, yeah, can you hear me? Yes, Martin. Yeah, okay. yeah so just very quickly on um, the, is. Well, I was, going, I was going to go on about essential workers, but most of the points I've, um, I was going to make have already been made. Uh, the only thing I would say is on that, I think um, John's point about um, um, the designation being something that the government defines is, is, a, is a very important dis distinction, because it's, it's only very much struck me how the government thinks uh, um, uh, during the lockdown, where they talked about switching on and off certain parts of of, of the economy, and I think we need to um, say 
and not necessarily that, that, that all jobs are, are essential, but certainly all sectors of the economy are, are essential. Because I do think, for example, um, um, pubs, um, churches, even even football clubs form, form important hubs of, of, of the community. And, and it's very striking in Northern Ireland, for example, I think churches have, have already opened, I've read, whereas churches up here have, have been regarded as, as, as non-essential. So clearly the, the question of what's essential and what isn't, clearly there's, you know, you, you can see how there's a certain political judgment that's, that's been made there. I also want to bring in how the economy is interconnected. Um, there's an article in The Economist saying, even if, if pubs and restaurants open um, and social distancing, it will slice off 10% of the economy as a whole. And because obviously um, that means less rents, less foot, footfall, um, less the deliveries and so on, eventually that, that, that will reach the, the, um, the public services in, in some sense. I think um, possibly um, what I'm arguing for generally is a kind of an organic kind of people-led approach to what is essential work as opposed to the government deciding it. And just very quickly as well, on the economy, at some point um, the government's going to decide to make cuts. I don't think it, it will be soon because I do think they 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 do realise that they have to keep the economy kind of going and continue to, to, um, to prop it up for now. But at some point they are going going to uh, make 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 cuts and I wanted to trust to ask the panelists how do you push back up prepare for that it will happen eventually okay thank you Martin uh, Louise okay. hi can you hear me yeah yeah um, so I think my, my experiences in care homes and in workforce planning and development um, previously and I just I am very cynical that much is going to change after this. Um, I would love to see um, some positive outcomes but I have a friend who's a care home manager they have 32 residents 11 have died since the outbreak and they're still trying to discharge more patients from hospital into the care home and you know, just absolutely no consideration for what the staff and what the residents have gone through. So, you know, in terms of operational managers um, making the right decisions, it doesn't seem to me like there's any great shift happening. I think um, John um, was touching on that in terms of uh, a sorting out of operational managers and um, managers becoming more effective. Um, I just, uh, I don't know how that's going to come about and um, recruitment and retention, certainly in health and social care is a huge issue, like Para touched on the, obviously the point of low wages, but it's not just low wages, it's the, the conditions that people are working in now where your shift can change from one night to the next day, where your holidays can be cancelled, um, people have no stability, even if they have a permanent kind of stable contract, if you like. But also, one area where maybe there might be some pushback would be on the culture of in working um, in workplaces. 
where this kind of bureaucratization that really drags people down and drags morale down might change. Um, I have no idea how that would come about, but I still see uh, a former colleague um, and took her, I think, six weeks from asking to be redeployed to go and work on the front line rather than sit in the training section. And, you know, they still were unable to, to shift that because of bureaucracy. So, um, so I'd just be interested in any thoughts on whether there might be some shift towards um, reducing that load, because that's a, a huge part of what, um, what stops us retaining people. And, you know, we may be able to recruit them, but we can't retain them. Okay. Okay, great. Thanks, Louise. Uh, Hilary. Yeah, so uh, back to trade unions. Um, uh, interesting, the trade union membership is, is increasing across the board, actually, which is a, a, quite a new thing that uh, everybody's trying to get used to. Um, but it really does seem to me, I agree with John, that you can't blame trade unions for, for leveraging the situation, but it kind of feels to me like they're just not doing that. You know, this is, there's no better time than now to argue for a sectoral pay bargain in the care sector, which would not just be about pay, it would be about high-quality training contracts, it would be about, you know, some of the, the uh, terms and conditions issues that, that Louise just talked about. And, it, you know, it wouldn't just be about SSP. I think we need to kind of raise our aspirations way beyond that. So, you know, why are the trade unions not doing that? It does seem to me that the trade unions have been kind of enmeshed in this, you know, do-gooderism and identitarianism. And they don't really have any kind of industrial understanding of the world anymore. So, you know, how can we, you know, re-get hold of the trade union movement? Thanks, Hilary. Uh, Bridge. Hi. Hi. Okay. Um, it's almost 10 years now since I left working in the public sector and the NHS in particular. And I left feeling terribly disillusioned at what it had become and the kind of Stalinist approach to the way that it was organized employing a whole lot of senior management who were yes people um, who uh, would jump when they were asked to jump. Nevertheless, the thing that really impressed me uh, at the beginning was how rapidly this, uh, the NHS changed to accommodate to the uh, pandemic and to prepare to deal with uh, the epidemic that they've expected. And colleagues uh, in the NHS have told me how some management really enjoyed working because they were using the skills, they were dealing with a real need rather than being pen pushers and bureaucrats and all the rest of it. And, and I suppose what I'm saying is that there's a number of people who have really enjoyed, despite the hard work, their, the last few months working in the public sector because they know they're doing what needed to be done. There's all sorts of reasons, all sorts of criticisms can be made of it. But a lot of people have risen to the challenge and enjoyed it. And I think it would be a real shame if all that fell away and we reverted back to normal, leaving the people in charge leaving the, the services in charge of the people who have run them into the ground, essentially. 
but unless there's some way of um, having a real discussion about what the public sector is for, what do services, what, what do we need from them, what do they provide, unless there's a public discussion about that, I think we'll revert to form and we'll get back to where we, where we were. Thank you, Breeze. Um, as, as one myself, I feel like I should stand up for the pen pushes, but I'll, I'll leave that for the moment. Um, I'll take a few more questions because I've still got a few people and then I'll come back to the, uh, to the speakers. Um, Phil, Phil Mullen. Thanks. Um, well, I agree very much with the last couple of comments or the sentiments of the last two, two comments of Louise and Breeze that clearly nothing is going to change uh, automatically out of this. Um, but uh, while not getting into a number of the very important discussions which have come up, you know, the role of trade unions, uh, what's going to happen in the NHS afterwards, you know, the crisis in care homes and so on. I, I just want to approach this question from the perspective of there are probably about 70% of the working population who are in low paid, you know, relatively lower paid than they should be or in poor working conditions. Um, and we are going to have, as a number of people commented, you know, a huge increase in unemployment uh, over the course of the next six months, you know, whenever the furlough scheme expires. So, you know, I'm not predicting what the figure is, but, you know, 10% plus, you know, is, is not inconceivable, as we've discussed before. So from that perspective, um, I've, the more I've been thinking about this term, this category, key workers or essential workers, I've come to the conclusion that, it's, that it is intrinsically a divisive term and a very unhelpful term. Uh, and picking up on some of what other people have said, I think, I think it's this, the ambivalence of the term makes it extremely unhelpful because it is necessarily open to so many different interpretations. And what it means is that you've got a term, key or essential, which is simultaneously um, over-inclusive, uh, at the same time exclusive of large numbers of people, um, that is accidental at any particular time as to how it's perceived. And thirdly, uh, sorry, fourthly, it camouflages what's really going on. Uh, I, I mean, I think the over-inclusivity a number of people have mentioned out of this sort of 10 million that were, uh, you know, on the government list, you know, what connects a, you know, a farm worker with a policeman, with a, you know, telephone engineer, with a nurse, you know, nothing really except accidentally to make that point. Um, they are uh, on this list, which isn't a list of who's essential in society generally, but a list of, uh, of who the government deemed was necessary, not in a pandemic, but in a lockdown situation. That's where it came from. Uh, you know, if it was simply a public health crisis, you would have a discussion saying, well, who's essential for that? Well, health workers are. If it's a public health crisis, which is mainly affecting older people, then you'd say, yeah, people in old, in, 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 in old, uh, old resident or older people in residential homes are clearly essential. But in other circumstances, other people would be deemed as essential. If you ask most people, they'd say, well, my job is essential. You know, essential to me, certainly, because, you know, I couldn't live without getting paid. And, you know, I play a role in society. You know, I, you know, whether you're a hospitality worker or you work for retail, but not happen to be in groceries or, you know, whether you're, uh, uh, you know, somebody who cuts people's hairs, which, you know, a number of us could do with haircuts at the moment. I mean, those people see themselves playing an essential role. So it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an accidental term, you know, deemed because of the particular crisis we're in. It's over-inclusive because it unites people that aren't united. It excludes, you know, the people who are going to be in some ways most economically disadvantaged by the, uh, the, the lockdown, which is, 
all those numbers of people who are uh, at risk of, uh, of unemployment, not the people that, not the people who are working because they're essential, but the non-workers, the people who've been deemed you know, non-essential who are going to bear the brunt of that. Um, and it also, because of that, I think it, it does fit, to conclude, it masks, it covers up the specifics of different sections of the workforce which require different strategies. Uh, you know, and the trade unions may be part of this or, you know, wage councils may be part of this or whatever, but clearly there are lots of different, very different problems that the sort of 70% of the workforce have, the essential and the non-essential. You know, the, the, what's needed for gig workers, you know, the delivery workers that we've talked about or the ones who are, um, uh, uh, you know, not doing deliveries at the moment, what's needed for the care uh, uh, sector, which Louise had talked about. What's needed for the, the health sector, which clearly has problems itself. What's needed for the retail sector, where the high street is going to be decimated. Uh, what's needed in manufacturing, which is obviously deemed as non-essential, but where it should, we've, that we've seen the most of the redundancy announcements from those big employers. From uh, uh, and uh, uh, we've also got the, the crisis of the, the tourism industry and travel, which is you know being being completely clobbered. These are all specific challenges which I think nothing will happen unless we have specific sectoral strategies, as, uh, as Hillary was saying. That means you have to get away from the broad, vague, ambivalent characterizations, but home dine into what is needed to improve the pay and conditions in these particular sectors. And so my conclusion that the, the whole terminology is actually one that we shouldn't really use because it, it more mystifies and divides than it does clarify and, uh, and unite in, uh, in pursuit of better conditions. Thanks very much, Phil. Um, Alistair. Okay, Alistair. Is that okay? You can hear me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that, uh, that what Phil's just said and a, a few of the last, uh, the, the more recent contributions. I, I also wanted to uh, endorse the distinction between a kind of instinctive recognition of, of work that is essential and, and its official designation. I mean, I think that in some ways there has been a positive element of the discussion around essential, what is essential over the past few weeks, because uh, I, I don't just mean in the sense of, of NHS workers who have already largely been on a pedestal for a number of years, but even just the basic recognition that, uh, you know, bin men or people who provide environmental services or shop assistants or facilities managers. I mean, I, I think We seem to have lost Alistair. Give him a second. No, I think we've definitely lost him. I'll have to move on and hopefully come back soon. Um, Joe. Okay, Joe. Oh, sorry, unmute you. Joe. Yeah, um, just uh, two points then. One was I wonder whether there's anything helpful in looking at uh, or introducing as part of the discussion something around productive work um obviously we were talking about essential work as a lot of people think about that in relation to the nhs and the welfare state the care sector um it was interesting uh, been involved in some of the discussions around the economy because that did make me look at things like you know some of the differences in the way things like the german nhs are organised their ability to cope with um, to cope with the COVID crisis better because they've got greater centralisation autonomy in the regions. Um, 
But the reason why I'm raising that is because it just does make me wonder whether as part of this discussion, we have to be able to say to people that to be able to have effective um, functioning services in the way that um, Frankie looked at some of the problems, um, we have to be able to see that in relation to the wider productive economy rather than as I think Phil very helpfully looked at some of the problems with essential versus non-essential worker. Um, so that felt to me like something that we need to discuss. Um, and then related to that then is the question that John raised was about essential um, worker because it did strike me again when I was looking at the stats and just the great, you know, the breadth of the discussion around um, key worker initially and then you realise that it's essential worker, then you realise essential workers tied up with legislation and the ability to strike. And when you think about um, the future and the um, real difficulties people are going to have, whether there's something there where we should be challenging that legislation, because do the one place the, um, where wages have been looked at or have been raised has been by Frances O'Grady, but she presents it in a way which is assuming um, that the government has to pay the difference and that it's not going to come through, um, a, you know, a, an increase in either the productive economy that means that people can pay taxes and um, that the that the the welfare state can pay for itself or through the pressure of strike action and it seems to be the case that she wants a sort of paternalistic handout which makes them very ineffective so i think the last point then again then relates to the ability of people then use possibly the recognition of the importance if the if the um, crisis has done anything is to raise the profile of the workforce more centrally in society rather than all being based around shopping and commerce and that actually the workforce is instrumental into in the economy is there are those relationships between different sectors um, uh, around the current focus on BME workers and um, the solidarity with the white workforce for example and there again at this moment in time we could be a really good opportunity and in the Nottingham demonstration yesterday there was an attempt by people to say that this we're all in this together divide and rule so it does seem that there's a, an opportunity there to discuss that and really uh, very clearly um, at that demonstration that relates to the issue of health and safety is the Labour Party and uh, the trade unions were pretty much absent and I don't know whether that's to do with their safety conscious lockdown approach which meant they weren't there on the demo so um, the church was more prominent than uh, the trade unions and the Labour Party which was interesting. Okay thank you Joe. Um, I'm going to go back to um, Frankie and to John. Can I ask you both to come back very briefly on just one point, perhaps try and group, group together a theme, and very briefly just say something quick, and then I'll get back out again because there are still lots of questions. Um, Frankie first. Um, I'm going to come back on Louise's care home point. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. I think my feeling with it is that it's also reflective of how we view um, people who are in care homes, be that learning disabled, um, those with chronic and enduring mental health problems, and also those in the older, in an older generation. And I think, you know, unless we look at 
valuing care home workers alongside putting in um, structures to support them in their in their holiday and also to go up the ladder as well so that there's an educational program they always they always feel like they're coming second best and I think we need to have a wholesale shift about how we view care home workers after this and look at how we look at the aging population as well Great, thank you, Frankie. Um, John, do you want to come back on something? Uh, yeah, um, just on the essential worker thing, I mean, I think I really agree with the way that Phil put it, is that, um, what did he say? It's uh, over-inclusive, but also exclusive because it, um, it creates a separation between different groups of workers. And I think that, that's, that's a really good way of putting it. And I think the, um, someone also mentioned about that this is decided by the government. And I don't know if people remember, but you know, at the time when they decided it and the list came out, people were waiting for days and days. You know, schools were looking for this, this list so that they could plan. And it was promised. And clearly they had no idea what they or they had an idea about what they were doing, but they were they were so poor at kind of coming to that, you know, conclusion that it took them, you know, quite a long time to get it when everyone was really desperate, desperate to get it. So that list of, of essential workers, and as I said, I, you know, what I tried to do was say, right, well, look, look what they said was essential five years ago, you know, and look what's essential now. And obviously, we are dealing with a different, um, different situation. You know, the essential list that was brought out for the Trade Union Act was really to try and stop groups of workers who were organised, you know, to, in taking industrial action, particularly tube, tube train drivers. That was one of the real concerns of, of the government at the time. So it is government decided rather than being something that, that we decide because, you know, I know that um, uh, I think someone said earlier on about, well, how do we decide what's essential and what's not? Because, you know, if you suddenly say that 65% of the um, or 70% or whatever it is of, of the workforce's jobs aren't essential, you know, most people are going to feel a little bit miffed that they're in what they're, they're doing a non-essential job um, because quite clearly people do that job for, for a particular reason. So, it, so that kind of discussion it is something that we need to try and you know steer it in a particular way, um, and uh, I agree with what people have said about it being you know a divisive terms at, at times, um, but you know and and even the kind of discussion around well who are we clapping for you know that that kind of came out in it are we clapping for the NHS are we clapping for carers are we clapping for key workers, there was that discussion about about how you kind of nuance it, and that in itself I think was you know was problematic at times. Thank you, John. Um, can I go back to Alistair? You there, Alistair? No? Okay. Um, I'll move on to Pat. Uh, when we're talking about the NHS, I think it would be helpful to clarify whether we're talking about the concept of the NHS, you know, in terms of universal access, publicly funded, free at the point of delivery, or are we talking about the resourcing or the opera operationalization? That's the problem. And I'm also wondering if people think we've learned anything helpful from health systems in other countries, like the federal system in Germany, that would be helpful to us. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Um, if everybody could keep it brief now, it would be very much appreciated. Okay. Um, is it Justin next? Uh, 
right? Oh uh, yeah, um, this follows on actually in, in some ways from uh, from that point, uh, but it goes back to uh, pay and conditions again. Uh, watching, uh, comparing between the situation between Ireland uh, and the UK, um, the thing that really stands out, and this goes back in a sense to, to uh, what Kerry was saying as well, is the difference between how the uh, bureaucracy behind the health workers uh, is is viewed. Uh, there's no love lost really between the Irish public and the HSE, which uh, has has always been in one form or another our national health service. The NHS has always had the same moniker for over 70 years, and maybe that's one of the reasons why, even though it has changed very much, it has instated itself uh, much more as a uh, as a behemoth. Um, but there were a lot of other things in common in the way that COVID was handled badly in the case of uh, of care homes. Uh, health workers were uh, were celebrated. There were, you know, there were claps. It didn't kind of go on as long, um, but maybe everybody knows a health worker, and you know, it is, certainly I do. Everybody is 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 involved in some ways with in family life with a healthcare worker in Ireland. So I don't know. Maybe that's why. Anyway, um, the question has to do really with that sacralisation of the NHS, which does seem to me to be of a very different uh, uh, quality to almost anywhere else that I know. And I wonder is that, in a sense, when we talk about better pay and conditions for healthcare workers specifically, um, is that standing in the way? You have diversity manager, a, a, a job advertised for a diversity manager for 44 grand um, in the NHS. Uh, how do you reconcile that with, um, you know, cleaners on zero hour, uh, on zero hours contracts and? Um, is there a sense, uh, you know, I, I, I can see the other problem coming here, that you want to try to, to get better health uh, or get better paying conditions for everybody without seeming to uh, pitch people's jobs against each other. And yet at the same time, while not being a zero-sum game, it, it, it is at some level theoretically finite. So um, is there a reckoning coming, for, you know, with that level of sacralization of the NHS? has in the UK. Thank you, Justin. Um, can people keep their questions about uh, questions and points to about 30 seconds if possible, please? There are lots of you that want to speak. Uh, Pauline. Hi there. Hello. Um, I just wanted to raise a, a lot of things that people have said. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree with some really interesting stuff. The, 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 the experience I've had really of, of, of being on lockdown has been one of, of demobilization, if not immobilization. And it's, it's I think, an interesting sort of um, difference that's, that's, when I'm listening to people who are key workers who are out there, and I'm working in a university, I'm working from home, and I just feel like there's nothing that's connecting me any longer to my local community life. There's, there's no volunteering going on. There seems to be very little sense. Yes, we go out and clap. And we do small things, but there's kind of pockets of activity, but nothing substantial happening locally in the, here in the Northwest. Um, but it, it hasn't just been co-opted either by central government or by a kind of centralized local government. So I think the feeling of being demobilized is very strong. And I compare that to the idea of being a key worker. And I think the energy about that at the beginning of this lockdown was that people felt, well, we're doing things or we can get to do things now that will matter. But what we do 
has meaning and it matters and it will make a difference, which is a very different feeling from you know, the kind of job you do where you're just pushing a pen or you're working in management and you have this sense that your work doesn't really matter or make a difference. I think we have, I get this really strong sense that that energy lasted probably about two weeks. People were buoyed up by the idea. They put their names down to volunteer. They really wanted to get involved in things. And we have slipped so much back into this kind of inertia uh, where decision-making is made by a handful of people at the center. And we feel just absolutely cut off from it. So finally, I wanted to say that, you know, for me, I think it's about trying to rebuild a kind of local democracy really from the, from the grassroots up and a, a sense of volunteering or structures that we can volunteer around because being caught out and realizing that those structures aren't in place means that there's very little you can do in this situation. They needed to have been built beforehand. Thank you, Pauline. Uh, Shirley. Thank you. Shirley? Um, I've got just a quick uh, comment to John and then something to ask Frankie as well. Um, John, you talked about guidance from government about return, particularly in the school sector. I just feel that I'd like to see less over-reliance on government guidelines and for head teachers and um, local authorities as well actually to take more responsibility and just get on and do it basically um, and do it in, in a way that suits their school rather than the sort of blanket guidelines that you get that may or may not be very helpful um, so I think you know the way of building those things about community and that you're saying is to actually to, to start taking responsibility again in all sorts of fields um, and then just to Frankie um, you were talking about how the, the, the sort of cult of the hero can fairly quickly turn into blaming and so on. And I wonder how you feel about what's starting, it seems to me, to emerging of uh, a bit of blaming about other people other than COVID patients not being treated, um, not being called in. Um, and how you think that might might play out and just to say having spent <laughs> in the last four weeks three separate periods in hospital um albeit you know a couple of overnight stays and one a bit longer um i was amazed that less than 50 percent beds on the wards i were in were taken you know the place is half empty and staff were really twiddling their fingers a lot of the time and I tried to have conversations about it and nobody seemed to to have any sense that there was a, a, going to be a shift towards getting back to normal and bringing actually getting people into hospital who needed to be there having said that just my caveat is I can't fault in any sense any of the treatment and so on that I had during that time because it's you know it's really superb okay okay Thank you, Shirley. Um, I might just try Alistair once more. Third time lucky. Are you there, Alistair? No? Okay. I think now would be a good time, unless anybody else is going to put their hand up. I might now go back to um, John and Frankie, uh, in that order, just to give your final thoughts, if you would please. Uh, John, first. Yeah, thanks, David. And uh, uh, really kind of interesting discussion. Um, 
so certainly I enjoyed kind of, you know, reading up about it and thinking about it in a particular way. Um, I mean, just on uh, the last point that Shirley made about uh, schools taking uh, responsibility, um, I would have some sympathy with that if the government, you know, actually provided some relatively decent guidance for them. I think part of the problem was with this is that schools had absolutely no no choice at all about whether they closed down, you know. So, you know, in that week before lockdown, there were various schools who were doing what they could, you know, as more and more people kind of went off ill, you know, or were self-isolating. There were various schools that were doing what they could to remain open, to keep that education going. Then when the government decided, right, we're just locking down and schools are closing, that was something that they didn't have any, any say over. So when, when they suddenly said, you know, right, right, everyone, open up on the 1st of June, you know, if we had, you know, the local authority, you know, who was responsible for a number of schools, then that might, that might be helpful. But actually, most schools aren't under the local authority control. They're, un, they're, they're in trusts or, or they're in academies or, or whatever, it, whatever it might be. And that, I think, puts, you know, a hell of a responsibility on them to try and do the right thing. You know, so heads were faced with a situation where, um, you know, they didn't have any say over closing and, you know, all the responsibility on opening was put down to them. Now, you could say that's a good thing, but you could understand a whole number of them thinking, you know, what do I do to try and be, make sure that everyone's safe, given the responsibility, you know, that was put on them? Because if they messed it up, it would be quite clear that, you know, there would be people come, on down, come down on them on like a real ton of bricks. I think just on, on some of the other things that people have said about the future, so I totally understand, I think it was um, Breege said, said about um, it might just revert back to, to where we are in terms of middle managers and bureaucrats kind of, you know, doing things, you know, rather than people actually getting the job done. One of the things that um, I think Mo, Mo posted an article in, in the chat for me, which was from Max Pemberton, which was a really good um, article I enjoyed reading, which, which, which talked about the way in which the NHS had really kind of turned it around and, and done all of its focus to trying to try its best, you know, to play, play a part in, you know, the, the fight against COVID-19. And the way in which getting the job done became the most important thing. And, you know, it really kind of showed up managers who were just unable to get the job done. Um, and, you know, I know there's, you know, there might be, um, uh, it, it may well revert back to type, and I think that's quite quite possible. But if everyone can kind of try and do their, their bit to make sure that it doesn't, then perhaps we've got some way of shaping the future in a way that, that um, the people that actually get the job done are the people that, that we value. I think I'll just leave it like that for now. Thanks, Chair. Thanks very much, John. Uh, Frankie. Hi. Um, I guess I'm going to pull together three points from... Noah, Shirley, and I think Pat, about the NHS and what we mean about the NHS. And then I'll pull that into essential responsibilities. And I think this idea, are we gonna turn on the NHS, I think is very interesting because I see it, I saw it throughout the pandemic and it was predominantly aimed about the lockdown and we're doing this for the NHS and why are we doing it for the NHS and do we not it became this very polarized discussion about the economy versus health and the economy versus the NHS and it will come out through the fact that people have 
undoubtedly had certain uh, procedures delayed. There's been changes and significant changes to the mental health care system, which has impacted on patients' care. And I think this, that, and also the point about could we learn from Germany? I think this is part of the problem is that we view in the UK the NHS as a monolith, as one structure kind of interacting with each other and making decisions. And that's not actually how it works. So each hospital had a slightly different response to the COVID. Managers went out and sourced their own PPE when PHE England didn't provide it. And I think the problem with turning the NHS into this kind of thing to, as I think Kerry said, sacred cow, is that you kind of fail to unpick the points as to what worked, what didn't work. Um, either it becomes a blame game or it becomes you can't do that because you're criticising NHS staff. Um, and so I think in the post-pandemic way, we need to think about what worked, what didn't work and how we prepare for the future um, and my point on essential and non-essential workers is obviously there's a reason why unemployment is um, one of the leading causes of depression in the UK and it's because you lose your structure and your sense of purpose and also your identity and that has come out throughout the lockdown on the other side it's also come out that some people really hate their jobs and don't want to go back to and I think the interesting point about essential non-essential work is it really ties into this idea about what it is to be a worker because going forward a lot of stuff is coming into the back door of how we restructure the working environment I have friends who've been told they won't be back at work till January and I just think it's worth taking this time to think about who we value in society why we value them and what this actually means for us as a society Thank you very much, Frankie. Thank you. Uh, thank you both, Frankie and John, uh, for introducing what I think has been a, a really interesting discussion. Um, I, I won't make any concluding comments because I think it's so far, far um, reaching that it'd be difficult to pull it together. But one thing we do seem to be agreed on is that key workers or essential workers, um, whatever we call them, that it's not a particularly useful description or tag. Um, so this has been a it's been a start of the conversation, which I'm sure will carry on elsewhere on, on other platforms, and hopefully I will touch on it again at the Social Policy Forum. Um, so please uh, do join us at future meetings. Um, I know the Academy the Academy of Ideas has got a, a whole program of Zoom meetings, um, and the Social Policy Forum will be um, pursuing similar COVID relation related discussions uh, in the coming weeks, I imagine. So um, Thank you, everybody, and uh, I hope to see you soon.